Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, it's July 8th, 2019. We're here at the Nicholson Library with Grant Coulter. Uh, Grant, thanks so much for joining us today. We really Absolutely, I'm stoked this. to be here. Uh, so let's start by asking, why wine? Uh, you know, I kind of wish that somebody had asked me that question when I was really little, <laughs> you know. Um, I feel like, especially in America today, you know, or, you know, where I grew up especially, wine wasn't on the table, um, literally it was, but you know, as a as a career, it was never it was never something that was given to me as an option. I remember taking that test in high school, you know, and it basically, you know, you're going to be a plumber. You know, hopefully it says doctor, lawyer. I can't honestly remember what it said I was supposed to be, um, but the idea of being a winemaker was something that was very sort of obtuse to me. Um, so obviously it took a lot of, of time and, um, you know, just different places I went in life to finally get to the final destination of wine as a, as a career and, and, and honestly as kind of a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, I guess my introduction was my parents, they grew up, I grew up in California in the Monterey Bay area. And uh, I remember my parents taking me up to Napa and Sonoma. And this was, you know, in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So my sister and I, she's three years older than I am, and we would basically be kicking rocks out in the parking lot or, you know, roaming the tasting rooms of, you know, I think it, I remember Frog's Leap and uh, Camus and Franciscan and I mean these are literally places that we used to go and and it was it was a you know two barrels and a board and many times it was the winemaker or the family that was mm -hmm. pouring the wines um, my parents would come out with you know a few cases of wine we would go up in the in the springtime and they would have uh, open houses and things like that so I was introduced Used to it, it was it was it was actually in my frame of reference, mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't completely obscure to me. So, you know, later on in life, um, you know, I, as I grew up, uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, where I wanted to go, you know, mm -hmm. career-wise, it was it was a hard path for me to f to really find. You know, I went, I. Um, I was living, you know, in the Monterey Bay, went to finish high school there, grew up surfing and just on the coast and I loved it there, but I really wanted to go away um, and go to college someplace else. So I ended up uh, moving down to San Diego. Uh, and honestly, it was like I went down a list of like schools that were supposed to be the most fun schools to go to. I was like, San Diego was like number five. I was like, that'll be for me. You know, I just wanted to get out, um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up going down there and, you know, thankfully my parents let me kind of feel it out for a while. I went to school. I was very undeclared for a long time, too long. Uh, 
my wife to this day, uh, Renee, is is perplexed by, you know, I, I basically went to San Diego State and I opened up the catalog. I never actually went to see a counselor, and I just started taking a bunch of 500 level classes. I never took, I never really took too many of the prereqs. I was like, ooh, you know, international religion and, you know, uh, whatever, just random things, because I was like, well, like, I'm taking classes. <laughs> so I started just taking all these random classes. Um, and I, obviously I was having a good time down there and I met some fun people. It was kind of a formative stage, but I could never figure out what I wanted to do. And then I remember getting a phone call from my dad and him just being like, look, like this is great, but what are you going to do? Like, you should probably sew this up. You know, we're, we're not going to be helping you out too much longer if you can't figure out what you want to do. And so I started to put my head down and started to think like, what, what can I do? <clears throat> and and I kind of landed on um, business. It was sort of a catch-all. Um, so I started to go down that route, and it was excruciating. You know, I barely got down the road, and I said, you know, what am I going to do with business? You know, um, it was... And then, you know, I had friends who were, you know, working for cell phone companies or whatever, and, and I just couldn't figure out what was the right fit. So um, I really started thinking about science and farming. I always loved farming. Um, my grandparents owned um, a cotton farm in the Central Valley of California. Uh, my grandfather was one of the founding you know, members of the FFA um, in the Central Valley, Kenneth Easter. Um, a lot of my family members have gone into, um, they all went to a lot of them went to Davis. They they work for uh, one of my uncles worked for Blue Diamonds. He was a lobbyist. My other was a my other uncle was a, a water policy professor at University of Minnesota. So there's a lot of like agriculture mm -hmm. in my family, um, but in academia. And so this was not foreign to me. My grandfather used to put me on these huge combines as a kid, and you know we would. I would never go out with him into the field, but we'd go to the dealership, and um, it was always like very um, important to my mom. This is my mom's side of the family, mm -hmm. so it was sort of like infused into my blood as a child. Um, and then my mother also grew up. Uh, her grandparents grew up in the Russian River area of California, also sort of steeped in wine. Mm -hmm. So all these things were, you know, kind of swirling around inside me and I didn't quite know how to like, you know, distill it. Um, and then my girlfriend at the time was like, well, you certainly like beer enough, you know, maybe you should be a brewer. And I, and I thought on it, I was like, brewing, that's interesting. And that, that was actually something that I'd heard of. But then I thought, I, I can't even remember the moment when it sort of came to me, but I think I was searching around and I was like, no, wine sounds more interesting to me. And I've heard of Davis, because my dad and my mom both graduated from Davis. Mm -hmm. He's a veterinarian and she was an English teacher. So they talked about those old days in the early enology program there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I started researching the different universities that had uh, enology programs. Started looking deeper into it um, and Davis, uh, I applied to Davis and I didn't get in and I applied to Fresno State and I got in there and I'm so glad I got into Fresno and though that was the beginning so I picked up everything I had um, right before I left I started 
buying you know pretty cheap bottles of wine, anything I could afford, and I started drinking them. My friends were just completely perplexed by this. They were like, "Wine?" I like they were. This is weird, you know. And I sort of looked at them, and I was like, "Okay, I got nothing left here." And I picked up in my little Mazda B two thousand, and I drove up north and went to Fresno, and. You know, Fresno's not the most idyllic place to go, but I had, I knew it from a kid because I would go to the San Joaquin Valley during the summer, so it was not foreign to me as well. So I landed there, um, and I, the reason I say I'm so glad to be at Fresno was it had a, a it had a winery on campus. We made, at the time, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10,000 cases of wine. At school, so part of your part of your your education was making wine. So I was, you know, was fascinated by that, and I've always been more of a hands-on learner than more of just sitting there and being a theoretical learner. Um, and I, no, not knocking Davis at all, but there was this the theoretical portion of that was was intense. Um, and the people that I know that have come out of there, you know, is you know, is very scholastically driven, and we were. You know, although it was a scholastically driven university, we were just, we were literally, you know, knee deep in grapes and learning this process. And I just found it absolutely fascinating. Um, and then I had a, a group of classmates. We had a very distinctive class that kind of came through. Uh, and I, you know, these are good friends of mine now and, and people I really look up to. And some of these folks had worked in the industry for a little while. Um, prior to going to school, um, they had worked harvest. I hadn't yet. I came in completely um, green, and so they. Some of them had worked in restaurants and had a, a small library of wine, and so they started opening bottles. And we had an enology society and a viticulture <laughs> club. I mean, it was full immersion. You know, it was. You know, these people were really in love with wine um, and they had there was people from all walks of life um, some people who remember there was a guy who had an asphalt paving company and he left it or sold it and wanted to make wine so all these people who'd come at it later in life and were going back to school for it mm -hmm. so these people started introducing me to wines started drinking different wines um, you know I just it, it they really helped to open my mind mm -hmm. and then school was this intense period where I was finally focusing on something, you know, and I went in deep, you know, I was in winter session, summer session, everything I had, I had to clear out a lot of, you know, prereqs because I had been taking all those 500 classes at, at San, in San Diego. So for me, it was a time where I had to like focus everything in um, and it was a great time for me. I loved it. I loved being in the Central Valley you know, I can still smell the, the, the smells when they, you know, they, they cut the hay and, you know, the heat and, you know, it reminded me of being a kid. So I, I felt at home there. Uh, and so, you know, rapidly went through school um, and, you know, learned the, what I did was I learned how to break wine apart, you know, on a almost on a chemical level. Every component of wine was taught to you and you broke it down into pieces, um, digested it, figured out what was right, what was wrong, you know, yes, no, problems, you know, how to fix or, you know, how to get to a place. Um, 
how to make wine in a in a more conventional fashion. Mm -hmm. So that's what I kind of learned in school. Um, parameters. So the next step for me was, uh, you know, I graduated college, and then where do you go after that? Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, the the next logical step was, you know, get a job. But what what did I want to do? Where did I want to be? Um, so I got my first internship um, was working at a a big winery actually in the Bay Area um, on Alameda. It was called Rosenblum. Uh, it was a uh, it was a really cool place. Uh, this guy Kent Rosenblum. He was a veterinarian and he loved. Zinfandel and he had sort of built this empire over a number of years and when I it was still family-owned and there was a you know a crazy cast of characters that worked there and it was on Alameda you know just off of Oakland mm -hmm. um, so I was living on the island there and uh, with a bunch of other interns in this big house and you know there was a night shift and a weekend shift and a day shift and <clears throat> my buddy got me the job there because he was working in the lab he was kind of the the lab manager assistant winemaker uh, and so we would just you know we would work and we had a lot of fun bay area san francisco was our back door uh and we just uh i learned a lot there of just kind of the craziness of harvest, mm -hmm. you know, the late hours, and, I, and it was like a drug, you know, just, you know, the, the energy from all the people, all the different things going on, you know, something catching on fire over here, you know, you know, a trucker, you know, a truck of grapes showing up five hours late at, you know, midnight, one in the morning, you know, all these, just the craziness of it, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and so from there, um, I kind of did some more harvests. I, I went down to Australia and I worked uh, over on the west coast in um, south of Perth in the Margaret River. And I worked for a really big winery over there. It doesn't even exist anymore, Palandri. And uh, I lived in a, in a van with a friend of mine uh, that I had met at Rosenblum, uh, a New Zealander. Tie and uh, so we would work the night shift and and then we would after we get off we go down and surf you know for a few hours uh, and then we go back and pass out and do it all over again you know we get one or two days off and go into Margaret River and you know so that was just a phenomenal time uh, we had a lot of fun and uh, you know that's a really that's a region you don't hear much about Margaret River and. Um, you know, it was a double-edged sword for me. I wanted to go work harvest and I wanted to surf too. Uh, so it was a great time. And then um, I moved back to uh, California and I worked at Testarossa, which was a, a little winery up in the Los Gatos area. Another sort of urban winery, but it was in an old novitiate up there. Um, so there was all the, God, I want to say they were... Benedictine monks. It was sort of like a retirement home for the monks. So they lived on the property and there was an old winery there, pre-prohibition winery, that the that they had made wine in for, you know, many, many years and then it kind of shut down during prohibition and then this guy, um, 
you know, basically leased it out and made wine there. And so I worked there for, uh, for a harvest. I worked for this guy, Bill Brousseau, great guy, probably the cleanest winemaker I have ever worked with. I mean, we cleaned everything twice, every time, you know, you'd take a tank apart, you know, the, the wine would come out, you'd clean it, perfectly sanitize it, and then you would do it all over again before you put anything back into it. And so he taught me kind of the, you know, the, the importance of being clean uh, in, in the winery space. So I worked there and uh, I had a great time and that's when I first met my wife, Renee, which was my wife at the time, <laughs> but we were in the same area. And uh, so when that internship was over, um, we started dating and uh, I really, I was looking around in California, but I was really sort of um, disappointed by the, the scene I was seeing in California at the time. So this is the you know early 2000s and there was an atmosphere of, I don't know. It was it was like clans, you know. It was it was just very, it was like Hollywood, you know. Who do you know? And you know who do you work for? What's your position? You know. And I and I I wasn't really into that. And I I just felt like it was this system that you had to crack into. You know, it was like trying. You know, it was like high school all over again in some <laughs> respects. I mean, that, I'm broad generalization, but that's what I could see, especially in some of the top estates and. You know, Napa never really resonated with me. Um, Cabernets, those kind of things, it wasn't my jam. Um, I really started to love Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So to me, I started drinking a few bottles of Oregon wine. Um, and Renee, my wife, had this, this uncle. And he would send her wines. He was a collector. Uh, he taught physics down in, uh, at a, at a community college down in uh, uh, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And he was just a rabid collector. Uh, and so he had this, this cellar full of wines and he would send her all kinds of wines. And so he would send us wines. And when I found out what she was getting, I was like, oh my God, you know, he was setting her up, you know, uh, Kistler's and Chateau Reyes. Um, and one of them was, he sent up a bunch of Beaufrere. I had never heard of Beaufrere. He sent up, uh, it was like 96, 97, 98, 90. he sent us a vertical, you know, small vertical of Beaufrere. And I was, I was totally uh, enthralled by this wine. And I remember a buddy of mine came over and we were actually staying at somebody's house and we opened up all these wines and we made this big dinner and it was really kind of crazy to taste these wines, but I'd never heard of this place. But some my buddy Matt had told me, he's like, this is like one of the best spots in Oregon, you know? And I was like, oh, that's cool, awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm glad to taste these wines. So um, I was looking for jobs. I was applying for jobs online and uh, a blank job came up and uh, for Oregon, assistant winemaker, small production, hands-on, there was no, there was no title for what the winery was. So I sent in my resume and uh, didn't hear anything. In the meantime, I was going through interviews with other California wineries uh, and I actually interviewed at a winery up in Washington. And I, I, I got lucky and they off, you know, a couple of these places offered me jobs, but 
I turned them down. I just, there was like, there was one Washington winery, it just wasn't the right fit. Uh, and then there was uh, a couple wineries in California and, you know, I was consulting with Renee at the time and I was like, do you want to go here? Like, you know, and she's like, I don't want to go to Washington. And we was young in our relationship and so I was like, okay, we got we to gotta find the right place. And lo and behold, I get a call from this guy, Eric Homaker. He calls me up and he goes, hey, you know, you applied for this job you know, a while ago, he's like, I've been really busy, but, you know, can I fly you up here? And can, can I interview you? You know, would you, would you like to, you know, come up? And I said, oh, absolutely. So he uh, flew me up here and, you know, I, I mean, I was so wet behind the ears, very young. And, you know, this would have, you know, this would, I had just been interning. So an assistant job was a big thing, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, so I remember I landed and I drove down, rented a car, and I met with um, Eric Homaker and his wife, Louisa Ponzi. <laughs> so that was my introduction. And they, they threw me in a car and they actually drove around to some vineyards that they were sharing, um, that, that, that Louisa was sourcing from and that Eric was sourcing from. And, you know, they'd go out there and, you know, I'll take a little of this, I'll take a little of that. I met, I remember meeting Betty Wall um, and she's got one of the older vineyards, uh, it's in Yam, Yam Hill Carlton. And, you know, they were, uh, you know, both, I think at the time, sourcing fruit from her. I can't, I can't totally remember. I know Louisa was getting quite a bit of fruit from them. Mm -hmm. And we went in downtown Yam Hill and had lunch at this restaurant that isn't even there anymore. And, and, uh, and then he said, uh, you know, you should go and have dinner tonight, go over to Dundee Bistro, He's, you know, the Ponzi family owns it, you should go and say hi, and so I, I did, and you know, I'm like walking in like, I don't know anybody, sit at the bar, I'll never forget, uh, uh, Erica Langdon was at the time running the, I don't know if she was general manager, or if she was the, um, if she was just running the wine program, but she was so kind. I was like, you know, hi, I'm Grant, you know, I'm coming up from California and just interviewing with Eric. And she was like, oh, I know Eric. And I'm going up to Portland tomorrow. I knew nothing about Portland. She, so she drew me out a map of like, you know, you should go to Hawthorne, you should check out these places, it'll be really cool. And so that was like one of my first interactions was with Erica. I talked to her a while ago. I was like, do you remember that? And she's like, I, you know, I don't think she remembered. She's like, there's so many people coming through, you know, and I was utterly forgettable at that time. And uh, so I, you know, kind of went up to Portland and cruised around a little bit and, you know, hit up a dive bar and called Renee and I was like, it's pretty cool up here. You know, we could really do this, you know? And, and uh, so I flew back and uh, ended up, Eric offered me the job, um, you know, and I, you know, I, the, the pay was, you know, was, was, was lower than California for sure, but I was like, okay, this is a great opportunity. And he was doing exactly what I wanted, which was small, you know, hands-on, um, you know, Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays. Um, and I was just really into it. And he was making his wines at the Carlton Winemaker Studio, which he was a part owner in, still is. Um, and so I got dropped right into the Carlton Winemaker Studio, which I had heard about. Um, you know, I'd read in Wine Spectator, I'd read about this place in Carlton. I always thought it was fascinating. My buddy, uh, that guy Ty, his, uh, his, his parents had come out and, like, and worked there 
done a harvest, I think, with Scott Paul yeah. at the time. So I'd, I'd also heard through him that it was a pretty cool spot. So I, uh, I landed there and man, what a cast of characters. It was amazing. You know, it was Patrick Reuter and Lee from Dominio 4, Bryce Bagnall. Uh, Bryce was ill at the time, so I never met him, but Patrick was making the wines. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, it was, uh, let's see, Scott, Scott Paul was just moving out. Penner Ash had just moved out. Um, I think I said Andrew Rich, uh, Homaker, Wall. Um, you know, there was just this, you know, really cool group of people in this place and I came in um, and Eric and Louisa were uh, pregnant with twins um, and so they you know were obviously in that was a big part of their life at that point and so you know a lot of duties got handed to me um, and so and I didn't know the lay of the land and so I, at the time uh, you know People like Andrew Rich really kind of took me under their wing. Um, Ray Walsh uh, was there too. He used to be the winemaker at King Estates and then has his own brand, Capitello. And he was making the sparkling wines for uh, Merriweather, which was an ambitious project way ahead of its time. And so I was like learning all this stuff, you know, and like during harvest, it was just like, it was a huge harvest of 06, you know, the place was too small, we had, you know, bins stacked up everywhere, you know, we just, it was just craziness. My wife had uh, just moved up and she was, did a harvest with Patrick um, and, you know, we had, we had some crazy interns that were living in a tent out in the front and, uh, you know, but the beer fridge was always full and, you know, the the spirits were high and it was just like, that was Oregon. That was my introduction, you know, trial by fire. Um, and I learned a lot that year. Um, and then, um, so as it happens, um, a job posting came up and it was for Beaufrere. And, and I knew obviously at that point that it was like Beaufrere was, was considered was considered one of the best. Um, and I had another buddy of mine, uh, Brian Irvine, he was working over at Shehalem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was enjoying what I was doing at Homaker, but, you know, the idea of expanding and going different places as, you know, as young as I was, was, was a great, you know, was fresh in my mind. So I remember Brian saying, are you gonna throw your hat in the ring on that one? And I said, ah, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I guess I will, you know, and so I sent in a resume uh, for the assistant job over there. Um, and I got a call one day from this guy, Mike Etzel, and uh, he calls me up and he says, hey, why don't you, why don't you come over to the winery and we'll chat? Um, and I said, okay, cool, you know, and like, so I'm pretty nervous, like really nervous, you know, this is, this is, you know, both rare. So I, uh, you know, got in my little uh, beater Honda Accord and I drove over and at the time there was no signs on North Valley Road to get to Beaufrere. You would just, and I whizzed right past it, you know, there was just like one little, one little address card. And so finally found it, went up the road, get up there. 
I meet with Mike and you know he's on the phone and it's like kind of like hold on and, and I go in there and so I'm kind of waiting and so we chat and we taste through some barrels and he's definitely kind of trying to figure out you know who I am as a human and this you know this launches into you know this is soon to launch into a you know a decade-long relationship working relationship but now that I look back on it I understand who that person is and what he was trying to do and he was not only gauging you know me as a, a, a professional or you know what I could do but also as a quality of human mm -hmm. and whether or not I could fit into what that place is was um, and so Hence, started a very, uh, a very interesting interview process. So, um, after that day, I left, and he called me back and said, "You know, I have you and two other candidates that are I'm interested in. You know, so it's basically between the three of you." Mm -hmm. And he said, "I want you to write me an essay." <laughs> yes. Yeah. He says, I want you to write me an essay about something that's like profound in your life or a human that is that has really been, you know, important to you. Yeah, and I'm like, okay. So I do this. So my wife, I, I have to give her so much credit because at the time she was like, you know, she's an English teacher. She was like, You gotta write that essay. You know, and I would drag my feet a little bit, I'd be busy at work and she's like, This is you you're being foolish, like get on this. So I write this essay um, about my dad, you know, because I did, I really looked up to my dad. He was a veterinarian. He worked really, really hard. I just remember him being up at 6 a.m. in the morning and being home at 7 o'clock at night, building this practice, you know, nights and weekends. But he was a great father, mm -hmm. you know. And so I wrote this, you know, and I worked for him for years. So both my sister and I did. So, uh, you know, we were kennel people you know so I cleaned cages and walked dogs and did all that stuff so basically saying that like this is really important to me and you know I did understand the the importance of hard work so he calls me back and he's like I like your essay your dad sounds like a cool guy can I call your dad and I'm like okay and so he calls my dad so I call my dad first, and I'm like, you're going to get a call from this guy, Mike Etzel. He wants to talk to you. Um, and he goes, cool, all right. You know, and, and so, you know, he called up and said, you know, just ask, you know, <laughs> can you tell me about this guy, Grant? And he's like, well, he's my son. You know, obviously I love him. And so they have a conversation about this. <clears throat> and, it, you know, obviously the conversation went well, and... My dad did me a solid, you know, didn't tell about all the stupid stuff I did as a kid. And, uh, and then uh, a few weeks later, I get another call back. And he goes, um, you know, you're, you're still in the running, but um, my, myself and Jackie would like to meet you and Renee. So, <laughs> so Renee and I, you know, we're not married at the time. Um, so the classic wine auction was going on up in Portland and Jackie, uh, Mike's late wife, uh, they were staying at this hotel up there. So they said, meet us for breakfast. So we go over there and I'm nervous, you know, and if you ever meet Renee, she can light up a room, you know, she just has a way with people, you know, and so she can connect with really anybody. And, and so we, we go into this this you know big ballroom kind of place and he's having dinner with Jack or breakfast with Jackie so we sit down I can't even remember what we were talking about but it was just you know we were getting to know each other but my 
uh, my wife and Jackie really connected. And so, you know, that was also a piece of the puzzle. And so I'm like, you know, and, and to this day he was like, you know, he, I remember he said at one point, he's like, you know, Jackie really liked Renee. And, you know, that was definitely part of the reason you got hired too, because it was a family and like all the pieces of that Beaufort place where they had to connect. So, um, you know, whatever it was, a week or so later, he calls me up and offers me the job. So I was, you know, pretty over the moon. But <laughs> hence, from then on, you know, I, I, I transitioned out of Homaker and went to Beaufort. And that began, you know, nine years of pretty intense and incredible learning experience mm -hmm. for me. It's a good long answer to start us off with. I have so many questions, right. I have so many questions right. to follow up on, but let's, let's talk about your experience at Beaufort. Obviously, like mm -hmm. you say, a very well-known and, mm -hmm. and pretty famous winery here, a family spot with Etzels on multiple, multiple generations of Etzels. Correct. So tell me about getting to work there and, kind of, and your kind of progression through in the, in the nine years. Well, when I started off, you know, I was still a total sapling, you know, and I think that that was really important to Mike. I had just enough knowledge to, you know, help with the technical aspects of the winemaking, but not so much uh, that I was going to just push back. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I had come out of, you know, I had a degree in enology and chemistry, um, and he needed that from an assistant winemaker to help, you know, run the analysis, uh, you know, just the general uh, maintenance of, of the wines, all those kind of things. Um, but, you know, he himself had learned wine through winemaking. Um, you know, his, his mentor was Dick Ponzi, and he had worked for him for about four or five harvests, and Dick had bought some of the first fruit off the Beaufort Vineyard, he and Ken Wright. Um, and so I was in this position of, you know, definitely I was there to, you know, support a supporting role and it was great. And the other thing too is my, my, my vineyard experience was limited at that point. Um, you know, I had worked in the fields in college in the table grape fields and done pruning weights and done a little bit of pruning and a little bit of that, but I didn't know how to drive a tractor. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff at that point. So, um, you know, working there at Beaufrere, it was, you did everything. You know, we were vignerons. We were growing the grapes and we were making the wine and we were bottling the wine and we were selling the wine. Mm -hmm. Everything, the full spectrum. Uh, and that was, as it turns out, one of the, the greatest benefits of that job was just learning everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he first day I got there, he took me out and he put me on the back of a tractor. There was a spreader. We do all of our compost spreading. So you have to stand on the back of it and somebody with a shovel or a pole would have to jam it down into the spreader because it was too wet early in the spring. So Rogelio Rosales was driving, and he's an amazing guy. Was he's been there for since the beginning? Was driving the tractor, and I was in the back jamming away. So that was how I started my first week there, you know. And you know, everything was just like he just kind of threw me into everything. Mm -hmm. So first harvest came, and just you know, it's 2007 harvest. And a difficult harvest, you know, high yields, lots of rain, you know. So learning this whole system and, and you know, doing things differently, listening to him, then trying to implement all this stuff. It was just craziness. Um, 
And, you know, I never worked harder in my life, but I loved it. But it was, you know, Mike uh, was intense. And, you know, he was, um, you know, he drove us hard. And, you know, there, it was a small crew and we were expected to do a lot. Um, and I had seen my dad work like that too, small crew, long hours. So it wasn't anything foreign to me, um, but it was really intense, uh, but I loved it. Mm -hmm. And so I was working, you know, to, to basically implement everything that he was asking of me. Um, and a lot of the stuff he was doing was different, um, you know and a little scary to me, you know, because some of it wasn't, you know, maybe what a textbook would have told you to do. Mm -hmm. um, and he used to rail against, you know, all those degrees, you know, all those people, they don't, they don't know how to make wine, you know, they don't make wine from the heart. And, and I was, you know, I was just, okay, let's just, I'll do what you say. And, uh, and so I started to, to see how he was making wine and then I started, as the years kind of progressed, I started really investigating and, and different wines, drinking more wines, understanding, you know, that wines could be made um, outside of, you know, the way that you were taught. So I kind of had to, you know, sort of, I had to sort of unlearn a lot of the lessons that I had learned in college um, and start listening and teaching, you know, and listening to Mike and we started um, tasting together in the cellar and teaching my senses. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the, one of the biggest things that I, my takeaways from there was don't rely on the numbers, rely on yourself. And if you, the great wines that I had drank you know, from other folks in the world had not come from, you know, a college background. These were people that had been doing it for generations. You know, I always, I always look at Chateau Reyes as one of my favorites. Um, you know, this Rhone Grenaches and they were just incredible wines to me. They were, and they were made in this very old traditional style. I started researching and like, oh my God, they're making wines this way. Um, and so, you know, through working at Beaufrere, um, exploring these other wines, I started to develop a sense of the wines um, and the way I wanted to grow grapes. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do it um, as holistically, as naturally as possible. You know, farming organically and biodynamically at Beaufrere was, you know, a tenant of what we were doing. And then in the winery, you know, um, we were doing everything, we're trying to do it as, as, as pure as possible. And, you know, we were doing little tweaks here and there in the beginning, and then by the time I left, we had, you know, we had stopped, you know, everything was uninoculated. Um, you know, there was, you know, wines were, were always unfined, unfiltered. You know, we were, we were making wines in a way that people um, want to make them now, uh, but we were doing that, or Mike was doing that for decades mm -hmm. before everybody else was. Mm -hmm. And those wines have shown themselves to be ageable, um, and incredible and so that was a working in there and then you know being a part of that family and watching the many transitions that happened there between you know Mike as himself as an individual growing and changing the interplay between um, him and his brother-in-law Parker that was an interesting you know it's kind of a weird thing that you never 
I mean, that was a surreal experience trying, you know, figuring out that landscape. Um, and then, you know, seeing the changes in style of the, of the wine and then, and then me coming in, transitioning through learning the style, learning what they wanted, and then eventually, you know, taking over as winemaker for the last few years I was there. Um, and then watching his son come in and all the, the changes. I mean, it was a, it was a kaleidoscope of, of experiences. Mm -hmm. Had to be pretty meaningful for you to have someone like Mike Etzel have enough faith to let you be a to have you be the winemaker at the end there. So tell me, kind of at what point you felt that you kind of knew what you were doing and felt comfortable in that role. Well, um, so from two thousand seven to uh, two thousand nine. Uh, Mike was really calling all the shots, um, and I was merely in a support role. And then, starting in about 2010, you know, he was let he was incorporating me more into the decision making process. Um, and you know, I was then you know 10, 11, and 12. I was you know sort of co-winemaker with him. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of transitions that had happened. Um, Jackie got sick, got cancer, and she eventually passed away. And so that was a big, that was a big, you know, changing moment for Mike and for the whole organization. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he needed, he needed more help, you know, and I was stepping up, you know, to fill in any, any places that needed to be filled in. Um, and then, uh, you know, so I was working in the vineyard, I was working in the winery, getting a, you know, overall, you know, encompassing uh, knowledge of the place, you know, and he was, he was, he was, he, you had to build trust with him. Um, so many years, over many years, I built trust. Um, and I remember, I remember 2011 was a really difficult vintage. And uh, there was a point kind of like prior, you know, at the beginning of vintage where he and I kind of butted heads. And, you know, we, after that, we sort of sat down and we talked through it, which was, which was big. You know, we both sort of sat down and we're like, okay, we finally came to a kind of a transition point in 11. Um, and then, you know, I think he realized that, you know, I needed to spread my wings a little bit, you know, puff my feathers. Uh, and so he gave me more, more autonomy and, and then eventually, you know, granted me the, the title of winemaker. And so that was huge for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, I was, I was head in the show. He was always there, always questioning, you know, he was, he was winemaker too. We were doing it in, in tandem, but he was trusting me mm -hmm. um, and it felt really good. Um, so, and, but I always wanted to respect what the house was. I never wanted to come in and, and say like, you know, try and make it into Grant Coulter's version of Beaufort. I always wanted to sustain what it was. And you had Mike on one end of the spectrum, um, and his palette now was going towards, you know, lighter, less extracted, you know, more elegant, ethereal, as he would always say, Pinot Noirs. And then you had Parker on the other end, who's, you know, he, he had a proclivity towards, you know, bigger in style, um, but not always. I mean, he also liked all ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, but the, between the two of them, I was sort of in the middle. And so I found that good common ground. 
Um, so I could make wines that both Mike and Parker liked, mm -hmm. you know. Parker had really transitioned out at that point and he wasn't as involved in the blending like in the early years that he was. We used to all sit down and it was Mike and myself and, um, and Parker and we would kind of, I would assemble all these pieces and put it in front of them and then they would kind of make the decisions on what the blends were. Mm -hmm. um, and then later on in life, like Mike and I would and then, and then towards the end it was mostly just on me. And then I would put the wines in front of them and they could say, yeah, I like them or not. Um, but that was, you know, that was a, a big piece of it. Um, that, that point when after 11 that he kind of let me transition in. And then when did I feel comfortable? I mean, really, I felt comfortable, but it was really probably around maybe 2014 and 2015 where I was really fully entrenched. You know, I had great relationships with the people that worked there, Omar and Rogelio, um, you know, Mike, uh, and then I also, you know, I was running all the interns. It was just, you know, ev all logistics, everything. And so those really felt like, you know, I was really, I felt comfortable mm -hmm. um, at that point. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your next step then, because there's a couple more things on your resume, of course. So tell me what happens after after that. Well. You know, Renee and I had always wanted to start making our own wines, um, but I never wanted to run into it. I knew this dif this business is difficult. It's glamorous and wonderful when you're doing well, but it's hard when you're not. Um, and I, you know, I really wanted to wait until I was ready. Mm -hmm. um, so, and also, you know, Mike never really wanted to. Um, he was not allowing me to make wine, which I totally understand. He was like, you need to focus on, on this project. So I asked him again um, in 2015, and I said, you know, Renee and I would like to make a little bit of wine. And he said, okay, you can do it now. I said, great. Uh, and in fact, we had planted the Sequitur Vineyard, which is his own estate, which is right next to the Upper Terrace in Ribbon Ridge in 2012 and 2013 and I was just starting to come online and he said do you want to buy some fruit too and I said absolutely so um, you know that was one of the first um, one of the first vineyards we sourced for uh, for 100 Sons so that's our Renee and I's label 100 Sons a reference from um, from flowering to harvest here in Oregon is usually 100 days or 100 Sons mm -hmm. so um, we were getting fruit from Mike, um, and then I had also met this other guy, Marty Dorschlag, and he was actually living on the property at uh, at Beaufrere. He had just recently purchased some land. Um, he was living in Washington, D.C., and was starting up his own project. So he was living in Mike's rented house there, and I got to know him, and he would come down to the winery every once in a while, and he'd ask if he could help out at harvest, and he was making his wines over at the studio. Um, and so he would come down and do a couple pump overs and join us for dinner and stuff like that. So I got to know Marty a little bit. Um, and so we were doing our 100 Sons thing. Uh, we were making it at another facility, uh, and uh, so I, in passing started talking to Marty and he was looking for a winemaker and somebody to kind of take over looking over all the vineyards as well too he had about 40 acres of a state vineyard um, so just so happened at the same time that Mikey uh, Mikey Etzel uh, Mike's second son um, 
had just come on at Beaufort and he was taking over the viticulture. Um, he was also making the sequitur wines. Uh, and, you know, I could tell that, you know, the family transition was beginning to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and Mike was never, you know, he, he was never trying to ever trying to force me out. I could have been there for the rest of my life if I wanted to, but I could see how it was kind of going and it would seem like a natural progression to me. And at the time, Marty had offered me um, the job to come over and help him out um, and take over as a uh, winemaker and director of vineyards there. So um, I transitioned out in 16 um, and started making the wines for what is now Flaneur. So uh, another ambitious project, estate vineyards, we're making sparkling wines, um, you know, still Pinot Meunier, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir, um, in addition to um, Renee and I's small project of 100 Sons. So, you know, the first year we were making, I was making in a rented space in Carleton, where we still are, uh, making our Hundred Sons wines and then, then the Flaneur wines. And we've since transitioned out of there just because we're making more and more wine for Flaneur, so there's less and less space. So <laughs> just the two are now separated. Sure. So we'll start, we'll start with Hundred Sons and tell me mm -hmm. kind of what your, you, you talked about kind of wanting to get into it slowly when you mm -hmm. were ready. So tell me what you wanted to do with the project, what you hoped Hundred Sons wines would be, and then sort of Renee's role in that as well. Well, Hundred Sons was, it, it was an extension of all the things that I had learned. You know, things like, I, I love whole cluster wines. Um, you know, for me, I have always loved, you know, one of the, the, you know, to me, one of the greatest wines here in Oregon were always made over Christum, you know, what Steve Dorner was doing. Loved his wines, loved the inclusion of whole cluster, loved the texture, the spiciness, all those kind of things. I didn't do much of that at Beaufrere. A little, I would always insert small amounts here and there, anything to create more dimension to the wines, but never to disrupt what Beaufrere was. So, but there was all these, these questions and things that I wanted to do in my own mind. Um, and so, Hundred Sons was my outlet to do that. So, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, there was, there was nothing that was sort of off limits. You know, the first year Renee and I bought, you know, we bought a 400 liter terracotta amphora and we were like, let's play around with this, you know, and I didn't really want to use any new wood. So I bought used barrels. I couldn't afford new barrels either. Um, so it was convenient. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I was working with uh, a vineyard in the Ribbon Ridge, uh, which is owned by Marty, which, you know, I had, I wasn't even working with him at the time. So I was buying fruit from the Flannery Vineyard and Jesse James that my buddy um, Evan was farming. And so I had all these divergent sites that I was working with and it was all about just trying to do everything as pure as I could um, within, you know, native yeast fermentations, unfined, unfiltered, you know, all the things I was doing at Beaufort, but all these different tweaks. Mm -hmm. um, and I was having a lot of fun with that. Making mistakes has always been huge. Um, and Renee, her piece in this is she's, you know, we are 50-50. Frankly, she's doing more of the harvest work than I am because, you know, I'm I'm usually either, you know, at the time I was at 
Beaufrere or Flaneur or whatever. So she is in the trenches, you know, I kind of give the general idea of what to do and then she comes in and she executes. So she's in there, you know, doing all the pump overs and punch downs and processing the fruit and, you know, and then we're, you know, hand bottling all this stuff and she's in there wax dipping and labeling and selling and, you know, and dealing with distributors and all that. So it is a, it is a 50-50 partnership and she is fully entrenched with this as well as raising, you know, two children. So, um, you know, it, Renee has a, an, an enormous part and, you know, both of us are imprinted on these wines, but in, in some ways, like, she's she's there around the wines more than I am mm -hmm. at, during, during harvest because I come in early in the morning and come in late at night, you know, but, um, you know, her her sense of being is all over 100 suns. Um, so yeah, that's, and as you know, we, we slowly grow. I mean, we, we sold, we had a house in, in Portland that we bought at the bottom of the market and we sold at the top of the market and we made just enough money to start this winery. So it's self-funded in that respect. And um, we, you know, now we, we bought a small estate vineyard and, you know, all these things that were, you know, slowly growing our project with time. And tell me about, about Flaneur, because that was fairly new to us as well. So you talked about kind of being kind of an expansive or a project and then mm -hmm. some, some different varietals there like Pinot Meunier. So tell me about kind of the, the sort of the theory behind it and what, it, what it's hoping to be. Well, I know Marty was a, a guy that came in and loved wine um, and, you know, he was able to purchase these vineyards and plant vineyards, um, you know, and, and, you know, very ambitious, uh, but needed somebody to help sort of craft the wines. And he understood what I was doing at Beaufort and liked what I was doing. Um, we had a, a, you know, a shared affinity for certain wines. So he, he, one of the great things there was he never, you know, plonked a bottle down in front of me and said, make that, you know, he gave me creative control. Um, so there at Flaneur, the, you know, some people ask me like, how do you differentiate 100 Sons for Flaneur? I don't, I don't do things differently. I do a lot of different things. You know, I don't have one format. I don't come in and I'm like, okay, everything is destemmed and everything is, you know, 15 days on the skins and it goes into 30% new wood. I, I'm all over the board. You know, I'm, you know, sometimes I have 100% whole cluster carbonic and sometimes I have 100% whole cluster foot tread and destemmed and 20 days, 35, 10. You know, there's no, I want a myriad of different flavors and colors coming from all these divergent sites. Mm -hmm. And that's how I create differentiation, dimension. Um, you know, that's how you can tell one vintage from another. But, you know, the, the vineyard sites that I work with at Flaneur are very different than what I work with at Hundred Suns. Mm -hmm. um, I work with, for Flaneur, I work with a Ribbon Ridge site and a Shehala Mountain site. Um, and they're, they're night and day from each other. Mm -hmm. So they make very, very different wines. Um, but I think the essence of what Flaneur is, is it's a, you know, it's a, it's a bigger project with things like sparkling wine, you know, which is something I had never done. Um, and, you know, when I first started talking to Marty, he says, you, know, you don't have to do it your first year, don't worry about it, but, you know, if you think you can, let's, let's do it, you know. And uh, we were working with uh, Andrew Davis, and so he uh, was, you know, he definitely held my hand through that first vintage, you know, 
I remember 2016 it being a warm vintage and I thought I was being on top of it and going and I said, Andrew, come out in the vineyards with me. Let's go check on, check on the fruit, you know, and we got out there and he started tasting stuff and he was like, you got to pick this, you know, it's ready. And I was like, God, you know, it's so early. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's sparkling wine. So like learning that new uh, process, um, training my senses in a new way, um, that's been a huge learning experience for me. Uh, and then, you know, working with things like Pinot Meunier um, and then more Chardonnay. You know, we're making a lot more Chardonnay than I ever made at Beaufrere. Towards the end of Beaufrere time, I was making maybe about equivalent of four or five hundred cases. And now we're doing about, you know, close to a thousand cases. So, and then my process, you know, native ferments, barrel fermented, it's a, a lot of work. Making a great Chardonnay, I think, is a lot harder than making a great Pinot Noir. Um, it's you have it's stripped down to a skeletal system. You have less flesh and sinew, bone to hide uh, behind. Uh, whereas you know, with a Chardonnay, it's it's right there, and its form is is uh, it's delicate and fragile, and so it's. You know, that's been a huge, another part of my learning process and what Flaneur is about as well, too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, obviously it's an incredible project. I've, the raw material, um, the vineyard management, everything is, is to like the highest degree. Mm -hmm. So I'm very lucky to be working with, with that kind of fruit and those people. You've kind of talked about this a little bit throughout, but I'm kind of curious if you can sort of distill your what you would consider your winemaking philosophy and perhaps how it's developed over the years with the different places you've been and different mentors you've had. Yeah, winemaking philosophy, you know, always continue to learn. Anybody who says that they have the, the, the magic formula um, is lying because uh, it, it doesn't exist. Um, it's always changing, always transitioning. One of the things about wine, uh, if you think about it, it's very fad-driven. Um, you know, look at what I, my parents were drinking, Matus and Lancers, and you know, you think about like the old, uh, just wines that people were drinking in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, there's a big discussion about, you know, alcohol and extraction and ripeness and, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been a transition, you know, through, you know, wines being deemed, you know, by, through point scales and, you know, bigger and more opulent. So there's, there's many different like styles, facets to this industry, um, philosophies. Um, so for me, what I've learned is, uh, if some people get on a high horse about certain styles, certain philosophies, if my philosophy is in, in terms of the world is like, if you're making wines that you love and you have a ready clientele who's out there and purchasing those wines from you, then, and you're proud of it, then go for it. I don't <laughs> care how you do it. Just do it the way that makes you happy. For me, I want to make wines from from my heart, and I have to I have to believe in a piece of artistry to wine, because you can deconstruct wine to a molecular level, um, and it takes a lot of the mystery out of it. But um, I sometimes push that aside so that there's a magic that remains in the wine. Mm -hmm. Some people think of it as an art. Some people think of it as a craft or a science. I try and keep all of them you know, 
at play, but I really hope to have the needle closer to the artistry. Um, I want things that are incorporated into my wine that you may not even know how or what they are. Things that make you think. Um, some people talk about wines as only an accompaniment to a meal. I want you to forget about what you're eating and be completely transfixed on what's in your glass. That's my goal. Um, I, I can understand from you know an 18th century perspective where it was always just like a part of a meal, a food product, very simple. I love wines like that, but I actually want this, wines can be transcendent and I want them to be there. And it's a amplification of people, place, time, and if we can put this thing in a bottle and capture that like a genie and then you know give that to somebody and they take that to their table and share it with their friends and family like to me that's incredibly important mm -hmm. and that's the that's the that's the fun of it um, so my philosophy is always to keep things as pure and as sort of natural as possible um, and that also gets into another discussion of sort of you know, fad and, um, you know, labels, you know, natural wines, what is natural, what is not natural, things like that, you know, that come and go. I'm a true believer that what I want to make are wines that will, will eventually be deemed classic. Mm -hmm. That no matter what fads come through, that, you know, over hopefully, you know, in a hundred years from now, when this has passed through two generations that that hundred sons is thought as as a as a benchmark mm -hmm. that's what i want that's what we're striving for i'm not saying it will be there but that's what i want to strive for mm -hmm. i don't want to be a you know you go to the you go to the mall and you know there's forever 21 you know and they're constantly chasing the next fad the next clothing style whatever and it comes in season season in season out I want to be something classic, mm -hmm. you know, like Pendleton, you know, you know, you know it for generations mm -hmm. and it's been passed, you know, you can have a woolen blanket from Pendleton that's 150 years old and they're like, this is, this is the best. So I don't want to be constantly chasing fads. I just want to create wines that are hopefully memorable and classic, mm -hmm. um, done in a very natural fashion, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you started uh, 100 Sons at kind of a time when obviously the industry was booming with labels. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me about the process of sort of getting your name out there, selling your wine at, a, at an increasingly crowded marketplace. You know, it, that, is, uh, that is the question right now um, in, this, in this wine world. I remember when I first started off, I had friends of mine that had already started brands um, in the early 2000s um, and I'd go hang out with them and all they would talk about is who's your distributor, you know, what's your, what are your margins, how's it going, How, you know, and I'd be like, hey guys, what about the vineyards, what about the barrels, let's, you know, what, what do you think of that, you know, or like, let's, let's talk about the wine, you know, and they'd be like, shut up kid, <laughs> you know, and now I understand it, now that I'm, my wife and I are running our own business and I'm also, um, you know, a part of another startup winery. Mm -hmm. This is this is key and critical question that we ask ourselves. Um, I'll be honest. You know, working at Beaufrere was an amazing place and has also helped open doors mm -hmm. because you can say to them, you know, I was working at Beaufrere, and they will say, okay, well, at least that that's 
I'll take a look at you. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not saying yes, but at least it kind of gets your foot in the door a little bit. Now you can't rely on that forever, but it was in the very beginning, we had some amazing um, partnerships that we've grown with, especially in the Portland market. Mm -hmm. uh, these people that had sold Beaufrere, I had gotten to know them over the years. Um, Andy and Marcus at Avalon, um, John over at Great Wine Buys. I mean, these are like two of our, you know, two great peoples. Angus down at Broadway Wines and Eugene, like partners of ours that have, you know, really gotten behind us and said, you know, we know you're a young brand and we're gonna, because they're hand selling this wine, mm -hmm. you know, so they have to have, they have to feel good about the people behind it because as you said, it is a very crowded marketplace. Um, there's also things like social media, which is not, it's not a huge, huge, huge component of what we do because we're so, we're so busy in our lives and we come from a generation that, you know, Renee and I being Gen X, Gen Ys, where it's like, it ha it's not as deeply ingrained in who we are, but we, we do post and things like that. And when we do, we see engagement from people out there um, a lot of word of mouth uh, from our friends and colleagues in the industry here, which is so humbling, you know, when you have people, you know, saying from great places, you know, when Walter Scott or, you know, Jim Prosser or, you know, these people are saying, oh, you should go check out 100 Sons, like that feels amazing, you know, or Beaufrere, you know, and so that's that's been really important. Um, and then... We have, uh, you know, very small markets. Uh, we, we spread ourselves out over the three categories. There's direct consumer, Oregon wholesale, and then there's, you know, the rest of the world essentially, you know, through your FOB markets. And I think a lot of people nowadays are focusing so hard on the direct consumer channel through the hospitality experience, everything like that, especially here in Oregon. I feel like it's a nuclear arms race of hospitality experiences. You know, everybody's, you know, outdoing the next person, you know, bigger, better, stronger. Um, and that's great. And these, and people love it. Don't get me wrong. We're too small for that. Um, so we do very few tastings. We do most of our stuff through a mailing list that we've accumulated. Um, we do, and then the Oregon Wholesale. And then we have um, a few markets. We've been very lucky because the markets have heard about us mm -hmm. and come to us. So we're in California, uh, New York, uh, Japan, and the UK. Mm -hmm. Those are our four, four markets. We never thought we would be in Japan or UK, never even dreamed of it. But they came to us, you know, UK came to us through Mike and Beaufrere, mm -hmm. and the, they've been amazing partners with us. So these are, it's been organic, but also we are very cognizant of how much we make, how they position each channel, and knowing very well that if, you know, you don't make a lot of money when you sell your wine to New York, but if somebody gets that bottle of wine in New York, especially our old eight cut, which is our Willamette Valley blend, which is $28 retail, which is a steal. The fact that it has Shea and Sequitur and Bednarik in it, you know, as, as prime components, you know, and we believe it way over delivers for the price. That's our marketing dollars. Is they go out and they buy it in a restaurant in New York and they're like, oh wow, we really like this. And then when they, they either call us or purchase from us or they come and visit us. 
So that's how we've thought of the process. And you start small, um, and you know you you sort of start off with the the pyramid on its head, and you start small and you grow towards where your eventual plateau is. Versus, you know, us if we made too much wine and then trying to work our way to a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how we've we've thought of it. And it is a crowded marketplace. It is. And the other component of it too is that you may it's you may be the most popular person for two years, there's going to be a hundred other people that are going to completely take you out at the knees if you do not remain true to what you're doing, stay relevant, and if you're constantly chasing a fad, um, you'll never make it. I don't believe you will. So I want to back up just for a second here. You've talked a little bit about this too, but you talked kind of about the California scene when you were getting out of it and then kind of your first impressions of Oregon, but I'm curious the Oregon industry in general, as you started to learn about it, what were kind of your early impressions of it as you started to kind of make your way here? Well, one of the things I loved about it was the sort of youthful pioneering spirit of it mm-hmm. um, and the sort of shared nature of the industry. You know, the, the, the history of, you know, the sort of the, the mothers and fathers of this industry coming together and, you know, the the Ponzi's, the ERAS, the Myron Redfords, you know, all these people kind of getting together and like, you know, trying to figure it out. I love that. It was youthful, young. David Led, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I love that aspect of it, like that there was, there was sort of gold in them hills, you know, and I was going to just head over the trail. And so, you know, we, we are essentially gold miners, all of us winemakers. We're, we're looking to strike gold. Um, uh, it's either that the analogy is either gold miners or it's Hollywood. You know, we're all coming here. We're all trying to figure out whether or not you know we can make it in Hollywood. And some of us will make it to, you know, to to superstardom, and others of us will be just you know disgruntled waiters. You know, so <laughs> we're all looking for that. Uh, but I felt like there was more opportunity here in Oregon, and I love that spirit. And I've learned that it's true. You know, there's a collaboration, there's a community. Um, people are really willing to help share share their 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 strengths, their weaknesses. Um, you know, Steamboat Conference being one of those things that I went to a couple of times that I found extremely intriguing and interesting, where everybody was coming in and basically laying bare, you know, their issues, mm-hmm. and so that as a community we could get together and and help solve some of these problems Mm -hmm. uh, in the winery and in the vineyard and even in the sales and and you know I have a a small group of of friends and colleagues and we are banding together you know helping each other out I I love that and that that is the spirit of Oregon that is that is here it's changing Mm -hmm. it's evolving Um, there's you know this might be segue into the next question but I mean there is a you know, obviously with incredible amount of, of um, investment coming into this valley, that's changing. Mm-hmm. But the roots are there, um, and, but the problem is, is that there's so many saplings out there, it's hard to sort of see the entire forest scape now. Um, there's big trees and little trees everywhere. And so, you know, I, as, as it goes into the future, um, I think there'll be people will sort of pod up into their little communities a little bit more than the landscape that was a little more there when I first came in. 
What do you see as sort of obstacles on the way? Oregon has been rapid growth, rapid growth for, for quite some time now. So. Mm -hmm. You're talking about kind of community, community within that kind mm -hmm. of happening. So, what do you see as like obstacles in the way of Oregon, Oregon wine industry's future? Well, I mean, though, there's a lot of facets to that. Um, one thing <laughs> I I see is, and I've heard conversations of this, is creating um, an overall style. Or what is Oregon? What is Oregon Pinot? What is Oregon Chardonnay? Mm -hmm. And if you're in, you know, Wisconsin, New York, or Arkansas, that there should be, you know, a two-sentence soundbite that essentially tells you what Oregon or Chardonnay or Pinot is. That scares me because what I love is the diversity. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I want people to be making a diverse selection of Pinot Noir, Chardonnays, and their, what comes from their heart. So if there's a homogenization of the industry on whole, like that scares me. And I understand why people do it, because they need to get the word out there in the world, and it's easier to have a, you know, a singular story to tell. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, I, I could see that, I don't want to see a homogenization of the industry, um, that, you know, Oregon is, you know, bright red fruit and high acid pinots, you know, they'll age well, earthiness. Mm -hmm. um, I want to see, I want people to talk about, you know, the incredible talent, the amazing diversity of vineyards, you know, all the different things that are happening there. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I, I, I could see that as being a, a short-term solution, but a long-term problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and then... Yeah, just the sort of, you know, a lot of the bigger players coming in now, um, how are they going to affect what the smaller ones are doing? Are they going to add or detract? Mm -hmm. um, are, is it, you know, with the consolidation of distribution, all these kind of things, like, are they going to get left behind? Mm -hmm. You know, are people going to have to go to economy of scale, you know, to, to make a dime? Um, you know, it's harder and harder you know to you know with labor costs and all these things to to make a dollar at this in this game um and so those are also going to be issues that we're going to be we're going to be facing in the future because mm -hmm. a lot of these properties here are small you know these are small you know family farms you know where people don't own more than a hundred acres it sounds like a lot but it's not whereas you know you go to california or abroad and you know, thousands of acres, you know, are owned by single entities. Um, so competing in that marketplace, competing on a global marketplace is, is hard. Um, how do people find the value added to an Oregon wine that may be kind of expensive comparatively to these very delicious import wines that even after taxes and import fees are still, you know, half the price of what an Oregon wine is. Like how do people, um, you know, wrench open their wallets and pay that premium price for our wines? Mm -hmm. um, and as there's more and more competition out there, that's going to be harder and harder because we're all competing for a small piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the whole wine drinking pie is this big, you know, and the premium one is only this big, you know, we're all piling into this premium slice of the pie. And so, you know, your, your voice has to resonate and people have to um, 
find value in you, what you're doing, and what you're producing. They have to believe in the whole thing mm -hmm. before they're going to invest and invest over time. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of some of the things that, that I see on the, the marketing sphere um, as, this, this, as this viticultural area grows. Talk, people talk about the napification of the Willamette Valley and I think you'd be foolish to think that it's not going to happen because the amount of money that's flooding into here and if you see this place in another 50 years, it's going to be pretty crazy what you see on the hillsides, wineries and you know just the amount of tour companies that I've seen rise up in the last five years when there was maybe three, now there's 20. So the agro-tourism is, is a lot bigger. Let's talk about uh, upcoming projects for you. Anything you're on the horizon you're excited about? Either 100 Suns, Flaneur, something else that's uh, kind of got you excited for the future? Yeah, I mean, for both Flaneur and 100 Suns, we've got a couple really interesting things. So for 100 Suns, we just bought a very small estate vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually one of the oldest vineyards in the Ola Hills. Um, it's only three acres, um, but it was planted in 1972. Um, so it has a myriad of problems from phylloxera to, you know, dead arm diseases. I mean, it, it's decrepit, but, you know, it was a piece of property that was on the market for a long time. And I think there was, it was a two part problem or pieces to it was the owner who lived there and planted the vineyard didn't want to just sell it to anybody. He wanted to sell it to somebody who would care for it. And then he also just didn't want to sell it. Um, and a lot of people didn't want to buy it because it was old and decrepit, you know. And so I saw the vineyard and I thought a lot about it and Renee and I figured out how to buy it. So we did. Um, and it's been you know, so we're farming it ourselves. Um, she's probably out there right now shoot positioning. And uh, the fruit that we got off it last year, our first vintage 2018 was incredible, you know, intense. And, you know, just was a, an amazing expression of the Eola Amity Hills. And, you know, it's on these rocky soils and old vines. And they, it just was an incredible wine that I love, you know, so I, I have a real, um, desire to keep those vines alive for as long as I can. And I mean, we're, if you go out there, it looks more like old Loire, old Burgundy than it does, you know, where you've got a, you know, the wires are fully, you know, filled with canopy. I mean, these things are just, you know, three or four shoots in many cases with, you know, four or five clusters per vine, you know, we'll be lucky to get one ton per acre. Whereas, you know, most wineries are trying to get three tons to the acre. But since we're not trying to sell that wine, we're gonna, it's all estate, it all goes to 100 Sons, you know, and that will probably garner a fairly premium price, you know, that we can actually make it sort of work, <laughs> you know, and we're farming it ourselves. So that kind of makes it work economically, um, but just barely, but it's really fun. And then for Flaneur, uh, Marty bought a new property right next to the LaBelle Promenade Vineyard. Uh, it's, a, it's 10 acres and we just planted an acre of uh, Gruner, Veltliner, um, and another acre of Pinot Meunier um, and some Alagote. Um, and then we planted some Gamay at the Flannery uh, Vineyard in the Ribbon Ridge. So we're going to be working with some, some other uh, varietals, a little diversity to the portfolio. And 
I think one thing you'll hear too is people are starting to explore outside of Pinot, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, um, and you know Chardonnay, Riesling. You know, kind of the top five. There, you know, there's a lot more Gamay going into the ground. Um, people are planting things like Mondeuse and um, you know Syrah and Cab Franc, and so there is a there's an experimental. Um, uh, tilt that's going on, right? People are thinking like, let, let's go outside of what Pinot Noir or what people know of as the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. Also scary in some respects because I feel like it's been done before. We may be just repeating the sins of our fathers, but because they, you know, they came in in the early years and planted a myriad of different things to see what worked and figured out what didn't, focused on what was good. So, I mean, viticulture's changed, climate change, all these things factor into it. But we, you know, it's fun, but a little scary in some <laughs> some respects. You talked earlier about uh, the the kind of harvest time being kind of like a drug for you the first time you do you, do you still feel that way after oh yeah harvests? oh yeah I mean you can't not I mean there's an adrenaline rush that comes I mean you're you're it's starting now because we're getting you know it's almost like a slow uh, build because you know the vineyards are you know, getting to a point where the canopy's up, the clusters are out, you know, color change is only a number of weeks away, you know, so it's like all, it's starting to, you know, this frequency is starting to change in my head. We're getting ready to bottle, all these kind of things. So, you know, it's already, that, that busy season is already beginning. And then when, when that first fruit comes in, whether you're ready or not, the adrenaline starts to flow and you just you just don't stop you never stop moving and it's an intense time of a million different decisions um and uh you know i love it it's different than when i was first starting because you know you either given a work order and you spent your day you know pumping over a hundred tanks or punching down a hundred bins whatever it was in my early years um or doing tas and phs for an entire day uh, to now me having to orchestrate all these different decisions from picking decisions through all the entire process to you know what barrel goes with this lot and so it's less of the me doing the physical work as I used to and more of me just making these like you know a hundred split-second decisions throughout the day uh, so it's it's maybe less physically exhausting as it used to be, but 10 times more mentally exhausting. I trade off. Yeah, it absolutely <laughs> is. My brain is, you know, my brain is fried by December. So tell me about where, with all the projects you're working on now, where you kind of see yourself in say 10 years? Where do you, where do you hope uh, 100 Sons is? Where do you hope you are? Oh man, it's a tough question because, you know, life takes so many twists and turns. You know, I want, you know, for 100 sons, you know, I want it to grow to that place that I could eventually, you know, pay my wife a paycheck. I, we've never pulled a dollar out of the business. Everything has always been reinvested right back in. So, you know, uh, we, yeah, we, we have never made a dollar from it. Um, so someday we'd like to do that. That would be a huge goal to have a self-sustaining business. And we understand it when you're 
basically bootstrapping something like that, you have to you have to wait. Um, and then I want to continue with my learning curve. Like yesterday, I was sitting on a tractor spraying the vineyard, and I was thinking about fermentations, and I was thinking about this particular area at La Belle Promenade, and you know some problems I had last year and how I could change that. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, extraction levels and I was thinking about, you know, different ways of dealing with this whole cluster uh, fermentation that I did last year that didn't work out the way I wanted. And so, you know, these things are constantly like churning through my head. So, and always learning, always changing, mm -hmm. um, never becoming complacent. Um, and, uh, you know, it, obviously I, I, this is my career, my lifestyle. I'll continue living it, um, but I, you know, I just want to keep on that true path of of making things that I love. Where where do I, you know, I want everything that I'm involved with to be, you know, financially successful and the people that are working there happy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I want to get my kids out in the vineyard and hopefully start teaching them about what it's like to grow grapes and make wine. Hopefully not push them away from it you know I have a I have a selfish desire that you know at least one of my children will want to take the business over someday mm -hmm. whether or not they'll do that I don't know I'll never force them to do it but it's a selfish desire mm -hmm. that would be the ultimate goal is is to you know sit on the veranda someplace with my kids someday and drink a glass of wine that we made together you know, and then, you know, pass that on to them to, to have a business like, you know, to see our kids like Louisa Ponzi, mm -hmm. you know, or, uh, you know, or, or Jason Lett or something like that, you know, to have our kids be like that or, or you know, Mikey and Jared Etzel, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Is, that would be pretty amazing. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, Tell me what advice you'd have for someone who was joining the Oregon wine industry today. Um, I think the the smartest ones I've seen that have come come into this industry are very uh, they they make friends and they f uh, make connections quickly and not not necessarily quickly but they they get out there they meet people they ask questions um, they're learning mm -hmm. um, they get to understand the market what it means to sell wine I feel like some people put the cart way ahead of the horse where they're just all about I wanna and I see the passion and I love it I want to grow grapes and I want to make wine. That's all I want to do. And then they go out, they grow grapes, they make a little wine, and then they put it in a bottle, and then they go, what next? So my, I would say the number one thing is learn, learn what it means to actually produce and sell wine. If you just want to be a winemaker or a vineyard manager, full stop, great. Because there's places that you can do that. And you can just be in the cellar or in a vineyard for the rest of your career and be very happy. Perfect. But if you want to do the full arc and you have this desire, like I see, you know, a hundred gold miners coming up here every year <laughs> who want to make their own wine and eventually sell it is, like I said, the smart ones are learning, learning the system before they start doing it. Mm 
Um, so that would be my number one advice is learn from those, you know, either go to school or, you know, listen to those people around you that have been successful, um, make alliances with people uh, in the retail and restaurant and, um, you know, FOB market so that when you do finally produce some, something that you're not just a complete unknown to them when you first say, hey, you want to try my wine? All right. That's good advice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we should have talked about that we didn't cover? The mm. last parting words here? No, I, I, there's nothing. No, I, it's sort of stream of conscience, uh, stream of conscience, you know, when you're talking about, you know, when you start to where you are now and, and, and into the future. One thing that I've really sort of tried to remind myself of um, as I'm in this moment of where I am, you're constantly either looking forward, mostly everybody's looking forward to the next harvest, uh, when am I going to start my brand, you know, when am I going to get a 98 points, when am I get, you know, what all these things that will eventually um, make you hope, successful, happy, whatever. But when you're in these these places, like right now, I have to remind myself that I'm building memories and, and this important sense of nostalgia. The nostalgia hasn't been built yet, but in five years or 10 years from now, when I look back at this exact moment, I'll be filled with a sense of, of you know, uh, nostalgia. Oh, I missed that time. That was a wonderful time. Those were the great days. <laughs> Never forget that you're in those moments now because they're so rewarding. I mean, Renee and I were scrapping it right now. We're trying to build this brand. We're working too hard. You know, I'm, you know, pouring my heart and soul into, you know, Hundred Sons and Flaneur and the vineyards and the winery and everything. And it seems crazy. And it, and, but you have to take a moment to step back and realize that these are like these are great times mm -hmm. that we're living in um, and that this industry is it's a pretty blessed place to be it really is um, and it has its ups and downs but uh, never forget where you're at don't always constantly be looking to where you're gonna go it's great advice yeah I like that well thank you so much for your time today for your yeah. answers and uh, your story and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.